The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I checked to see if there was, I could get a response really quick and I didn't. And then I ran to the, to the doorway and just yelled for someone to call 911. Uh, I told the girl that was on the phone with them. You know, we're taught even if you break a rib, you, you don't stop. You continue compressions. And so I, I thought that's what I had done. We're all familiar with the phrase growing old together, referring, of course, to the idea of settling down with the person you love long into old age. A romantic concept without a doubt. But let's face it, no relationship is perfect. It's never as polished as they're portrayed in books or movies, even in the strongest of partnerships. After all, we're only human and relationships take work. We all want to believe that true love is a real and obtainable thing. In fact, some of you listening right now may have been lucky enough to find it already. Regardless, we all want to feel as though there's someone out there for each of us. That one person we're meant to be with forever. The only thing is, forever is a very long time. And some fail to anticipate or appreciate that fact. In this week's episode, we dive deep into one couple's relationship and uncover how one partner's idea of, quote, growing old together ultimately evolved over time. When relationships end, mature individuals hopefully will part ways amicably. The insecure might linger in their emotions a bit longer before saying goodbye, but a narcissist might just have the frightening potential to exit in a manner that's much more, shall we say, dramatic. In the early 1990s, a man by the name of Daniel Brophy and a woman then known as Nancy Crampton would meet. Dan was a chef and Nancy was an aspiring romance novelist. The creative pair recognized between them a spark right away. Both in their mid to late 30s at the time they were introduced, they knew what they were looking for by now. Dan, in particular, had experienced a previous marriage that didn't pan out the way he'd expected he wasn't the type of man to beat around the bush by any means, and that approach certainly applied when expressing his feelings for Nancy. After several years of dating, Miss Crampton eventually became Mrs. Brophy, marrying Dan in 1999. They began building a lovely life together, eventually purchasing a home in Portland, Oregon that same year. The city was the perfect place for the couple's passion for the arts, outdoors, and culinary offerings. And by 2011, Nancy had self-published several novels and writings, and Dan was an eccentric, lovable personality who enjoyed raising his chickens and tending to his garden. He was also an expert at mushroom foraging. 
He eventually took a position as an instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute in southwest Portland. Dan relished in teaching the up-and-coming generation of promising young chefs using his knowledge of the trade. But what set Chef Brophy apart was that he made it fun with his quick-witted sense of humor. Here's just one example. Three months of washing dishes in Kansas City led to um, the premier position of graveyard shift in a 24-hour restaurant. In the span of almost four years, I probably worked for 10 different European chefs, and they set the bar a little higher. They don't really believe in human rights. They don't really care if you've got concert tickets or would like two nights off together in a week. Sarcasm was a second language for Dan, and he spoke it fluently. In fact, one of his favorite sayings was, Any job will take less time if you don't do it so slow. We had the opportunity to speak with one of Dan's former students from years past, a man by the name of Bob Warnock. Bob has since gone on to open his own restaurant, Patty's Off-Center Cafe in nearby Salem. Attributing much of his success to Dan's early teachings, here he is sharing some of his fond memories with Chef Brophy in the kitchen. He always did what they called a uh, culinary jeopardy, and then it was just like jeopardy on you know, on the TV show. It was a pretty neat deal. It was a tasting class. Reason for the class was to uh, introduce us to products that we'd never tried. But uh, Dan was a good guy. Dan would bring in spices and plants from his home garden to use in dishes created in class. And while he was an amazing instructor, there were no frills with Dan. What you saw was what you got. Students recalled him as firm but fair. Bob gives us an example of just how serious Chef Brophy was as it related to attendance when he missed too many days due to a death in the family. My grandfather passed away the first time I took his class. You could only miss two days because it was an excelled program. I ended up missing four, so I had to redo the whole class. I was almost finished with it when uh, my grandfather passed away, so I ended up having to take it twice. And he kind of made tried to make an example out of me because I... I already knew all this stuff, so it was a pretty easy ace for me. It was pretty cool. Bob never faulted Chef Brophy for his response. In fact, he went on to tell us how he appreciated the opportunity to play Culinary Jeopardy twice that year, a testament to just how captivating and interesting his classes must have been. While everything seemed great for Dan and his wife Nancy in the picturesque woods of the Pacific Northwest, not all that glitters is gold. Around 2016, the couple started experiencing some significant financial problems. Nancy's career as a novelist wasn't exactly skyrocketing. She also worked in life insurance while Dan taught culinary classes. He also sold items from his garden for extra income, but those funds only stretched so far. Dan and Nancy were living well beyond their means. On top of some unexpected medical bills, the two soon fell behind on mortgage payments. It's times like these where a relationship is truly put to the test, and how you work together as a team to overcome such hardships can make or break the bond. Even a marriage of more than 20 years, like these two had. Sadly, in the case of Chef Dan and Nancy Brophy, things would only get worse before they got better, and money issues would eventually pale in comparison to what happened next.
morning of June 2, 2018, Dan Brophy left his house, heading to teach a Saturday course at the Culinary Institute. Live fire, they called it, simulating real-life scenarios in the kitchen and fast-paced environments, complete with mock tickets piling up and food orders getting sent back from fictitious, angry customers. Dan is seen on surveillance video entering and exiting a Starbucks at around 7.15 a.m. before proceeding on his way to the school. Dan's truck is seen parked out front of the Institute. We know that he enters the kitchen at approximately 7.22, as he deactivated the alarm system upon entering. He was set to teach an 8.30 class that morning, but with a busy day ahead of him, it wasn't abnormal for him to show up and prep the kitchen early. At around 7.30, another student enters the building, but does not enter the kitchen that Dan was in. It wasn't until right before class was set to begin that another instructor and several of Dan's other students made a horrifying discovery. Chef Brophy was laying on the kitchen tile, and he wasn't breathing. 911. Um, hi, we are at um, uh, Oregon Culinary Institute, and there is somebody collapsed in uh, uh, one of our kitchens. Okay, one just for a moment. And what's the address there? It, what's the address? 1701. 17 what? Southwest Madison, 1701 presuming this may have been some type of freak accident or heart attack. The students rushed to Chef Brophy's aid, attempting to render CPR. And does anyone, is anyone doing CPR? Yes, yes. Okay, someone's doing CPR right now? Yep. Do they, yes. do they need instructions? Do you need instructions or do you need... Do you need for, Are they doing compressions okay. only? Yes, yeah. she's doing compressions. And um, I can switch out too if you need to because okay. I'm uh, CPR certified. Okay. All right, and do you know the cause of this or what happened? Did he just no, collapse? No, we have no idea. Somebody just found him on the floor. Okay, so I just want you to continue doing those CPR compressions okay. until compressions. until help gets there. If you guys need until to until help gets here, yeah. If you need to, um, I'm just talking to the gal who's doing it. Perfect. And if you if she gets tired and someone needs to do uh, take over, go ahead and do that. Okay. As one student continued administering chest compressions, as heard in the background. The group quickly realized that the situation was much more dire than they had all originally thought. Keep going. Do you want me to do it? Yeah. Okay. He's bleeding out of what? Okay. He's bleeding out of his chest. Bleeding out of his chest? Okay. Yeah. Does he, he just started bleeding. Okay. Is someone still doing CPR? Yes. No. Should she, she keep going? The broken. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ma'am. The caller's relaxed cadence quickly turns to sheer panic when she realizes that blood is coming from Chef Brophy's chest and back area. Those on scene urgently attempting to help the 63-year-old man regain consciousness can be heard frantically crying in the near distance, believing Dan's ribs must have been broken due to the force used during CPR. It's extremely difficult to hear this audio as several individuals desperately attempt to save their friend and instructor's life. 
She's still doing compressions. Okay. All right. She needs, does she need to continue? It, it, whatever she feels comfortable comfortable doing. Whatever you feel comfortable doing. Do you want me to turn, turn out? Do you want me to take a turn? They're they're getting they'll be there. They're coming really fast. They'll be there any okay, second. They're gonna okay. be there any second. I know you're doing a good job. I know I okay. know you're doing a good job. Okay. Someone's on scene right now. Is there someone yeah. out there? Okay, I know. Okay, they're coming. They're coming. Do you see them? Oh, fuck. No, we don't. Okay, I know you're. I know, Katie. You're doing a good job. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. By the time emergency services arrived, it was too late. Their resuscitation efforts were unsuccessful, and Chef Daniel Brophy was beyond help. He was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. This traumatic event was inconceivable for those present, and left students and faculty in a mentally scarred state of confusion, wondering how and why did this happen. But what's even more dumbfounding is that it wasn't a stroke, heart attack, or any other natural cause that took this beloved chef's life, as everyone on site had initially perceived. Instead, it was later revealed that two 9mm bullets are what actually killed Dan Brophy, one to the chest and one to the back. Chef Brophy appeared to have been ambushed, gunned down there in his own kitchen while he filled buckets of ice at the sink sometime between 7.22 and 8.30 a.m. when he was found just before his scheduled class. But one thing was for certain, this wasn't a robbery, as no expensive commercial equipment had been stolen or even tampered with. Dan's wallet was also still on his person. It became evident almost immediately that this was not some sort of random attack, but instead a personal murder committed in cold blood and it was now up to investigators to find out who was responsible. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out Who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Daniel Brophy was an instructor at the Oregon Culinary Institute since its very inception. He'd been there for over 10 years and was revered by the community. This tremendous loss reverberated throughout Portland and beyond, and those who came to know and love Dan personally mourned deeply. He was really tough. He was really hard. He um, would call out some of the flaws that you had so you can correct them. Knowledge, knowledge beyond belief. You think you come into culinary school like wide-eyed with like this dream of being a chef and he realizes like you can do that but there's a lot of things you need to know in between that. He was a friend to everybody out of the school holding stuff on the weekends to help you learn more. Taking students out mushroom foraging or showing you how to 
properly raise a chicken from start to finish. There is a possibility that somebody has a surveillance system that we didn't see their camera, so we do ask if, if you do have surveillance and you haven't been contacted by police to give us a call. Surveillance footage would indeed play a crucial role in this case, but at this stage, authorities were diligently conducting interviews with potential witnesses and students who were at the scene where Dan was found. But one interview that stood out from the rest was when law enforcement procedurally visited Dan's wife Nancy to deliver the terrible news of her husband's untimely death. Nancy's behavior was notably odd during this encounter. Listen to this conversation between police and Mrs. Brophy just hours after her husband of over two decades was killed. So, I, I just want to let you know that, you know, we, we believe, you know, Dan, Dan, we believe it's Dan that's, that, that has been killed. Okay. Yeah, I kind of got that I, I when everybody gave me the sad sack look. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Um, it's our job to figure out what happened. And that's why we're talking to you. Oh, sure. Because you're part of the story, right, of, of right. What, what took place. And, it's, and, and so I just want to be, you know, straightforward and frank with you. Good. Is there anybody that would... That you know of that wanted to do something to this to to Dan. Everybody I've heard from so far is like Dan's a nice guy. He is a nice guy. You know, and and, and students seem to like him and and, and everything. So and, you know that's why that's the question. He, it's like why why he's would not somebody a do something? Rouser. I mean, he is. You know, he he just. It took me four and a half years to convince him to marry me. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know. We uh, just move real fast on things. No, <laughs> okay. he, uh, you know, he is, but we had a great marriage. Okay. Remember, this is the same day that her husband was murdered. It's important to keep this in mind when examining the intonation and rise and fall of Nancy's voice. Surely, the apparent nervousness and trembling could mean nothing. Nancy may have just been in an extreme state of shock, as people process sudden traumatic information in very distinct and unique ways. However, it is worth noting how she lets this life-shattering news seemingly roll off her shoulders in a questionable and unsettling way. The only people I know who have ever hated him was his ex-wife, and who his ex-wife doesn't hate the husband. You know, and I can't believe after 25 years she'd be motivated. Okay. You know, so yeah, I mean, short of that... All right. Uh, we never, we haven't, we just, we live a quiet life. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we're just trying to figure out what, you know, and that's why I'm asking, I'm asking sure. some of these kind of questions. Can you tell stuff. me what happened as far as you know? He was shot. With an AR-15? No, I don't know what he was shot with. Oh. Um, but he was shot with a gun. Why, why do you say AR-15? Because school shootings are all oh, no. AR-15s. <laughs> Nancy proceeds to ramble on going off on different tangents, none of them exactly pertinent to what the officers are asking her. This morning and I discovered all this food in the den, and I looked at it and I knew it was chicken food, but tell me why we need it in our den. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's just that kind of guy, you know, and he's he's pretty independent and he's um, he's a wonderful guy. He really is a wonderful guy. When police asked Nancy where she was during the time that Dan was believed to have been killed, she responded by stating that she was home and in bed. She even laughs and makes strange, lighthearted banter in between police questions. 
as if her husband had not just been coldly shot to death hours before. Needless to say, the more Nancy spoke, the more curious officers became. Um, just another question. What kind of vehicles do you guys drive? You guys each have your own vehicles? He or? has a white truck that's out here. Okay. And it's a Toyota 2010 pickup. It's a, a Tacoma. Oh, okay. Here's another example of Nancy's voice making a very distinct change in tone when she's asked about the make, model, and color of her vehicle. If you listen closely, you can hear her voice resemble notes of something more serious in nature, as if this question somehow suddenly sobered her up, so to speak. She hesitates, pausing slightly, differentiating from her casual rambling up until this point to an entirely different tone. But again, everyone grieves differently, so officers continued with their line of questioning. I have a Toyota van. Like a minivan? No, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A Sienna. A Sienna, okay. What color is that? Gray. Okay. And what year is that one? Roughly? 2007. Got it. They're both paid for, and there's a point where you're rather drive an older car that's paid for than it's the way I would payments. Do it. Yep. Nancy continues offering up odd responses to simple questions, feeling the need to explain that her minivan is paid off as if that information is somehow relevant. It's just one more example of her incredibly nervous behavior. But you know, here's the terrible thing. Even if you find who shot him, it's not going to bring him back. And I want him back. That's the part I want. I don't care about who shot him. I just want him back. I don't want him dead. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank you. This is the very first time we hear any sounds resembling crying or any other emotion, aside from laughter coming from Nancy after learning the terrible news. Also not available in this police recording, Nancy had reportedly stated to officers, quote, You probably think I killed my husband. A statement that surely raised some eyebrows among those present, to say the very least. While police certainly gained new perspective from their interaction with the now-widowed Nancy Brophy, they thanked her for her cooperation and went on their way with the investigation. Then on June 3, 2018, the following day, Nancy took to Facebook to acknowledge Dan's tragic death and to publicly express her grief. For my Facebook friends and family, I have sad news to relay. My husband and best friend, Chef Dan Brophy, was killed yesterday morning. For those of you who are close to me and feel this deserved a phone call, you are right that I am struggling to make sense of everything right now. There is a candlelit vigil at Oregon Culinary Institute tomorrow, Monday, June 4th, at 7 p.m. While I appreciate all of your loving responses, I am overwhelmed. Please save phone calls for a few days until I can function. June 4, 2018. The time for Chef Brophy's vigil had reluctantly arrived. Those who knew him struggled to say goodbye to such a wonderful person who had been taken in such a violent way. Countless former students and members of the Portland community alike gathered, 
lighting candles in remembrance of Chef Dan. Nancy was also there, front and center, shown on camera via local TV stations as she smiled and engaged with loved ones. She even took to the podium at one point to share a few words, speaking on her late husband's behalf and proclaiming her profound love and sadness over the loss of her, quote, best friend. Having only been two days since Dan's murder, this all seemed natural, and nothing was perceived to be out of the ordinary. Friends and family consoled Nancy. After all, she had just lost the man she had spent the greater part of her life with. Meanwhile, police were actively gathering evidence behind the scenes, but some obvious red flags had already been noted, one in particular that simply could not be ignored. A couple of days after Nancy was on the news hosting Dan's candlelit vigil, she made this unorthodox phone call to detectives on June 6th. I don't want to do, but this may give you a laugh this afternoon. Uh, I don't want to be the stupid question of the day, but I think I need to be the stupid question of the day. Uh, so okay. my insurance company said, well, just have the detective write a letter that you're no longer a suspect. And I said, man, I just don't know that he's there. Uh, huh? And I'm not sure that he looks at that way. But if you do, I get you to write the letter. My sister, when I told her this as a lawyer, laughed so hard she fell out of the chair. So why? <laughs> why would you need that? Because they don't want to pay if it turns out that I secretly went down to the school and shot my husband if I thought, hey, going into old age without Dan after 25 years, it's really what I'm looking for, you know? <laughs> okay. And well, so we... We never would do something like that. I, I, did, I really didn't think so. Yeah, I mean that's not something that we. I, I we never we never do something like that. That's never been done. I've never heard of that being done. I, I was shocked when he told me this. And the other thing he says, well, I said, so what happens if, in fact, based upon your, and this is this is such a stupid little policy. I can't believe they're making me jump to the hoops like this. This is only forty thousand dollars. And as my sister said, you know, usually when they do that, it's for millions. And I said, yeah, we weren't sure for millions. Uh, but the other thing is, I said, what happens if, in fact, this case never gets resolved? And they said, well, that has to go to uh, up to the supervisors to be evaluated. And I'm thinking, great. This is a recording of Nancy Brophy calling homicide detectives asking to be removed as a suspect in the murder investigation of her husband. That is, of course, if she was indeed a suspect, so that she could successfully collect a $40,000 life insurance payout in her husband's name. Clearly, the detective on the other line is beside himself, almost abandoning all formalities and professionalism after hearing such a bizarre request. Again, it's important to note that Daniel Brophy had not been deceased yet for a full seven days. And if Nancy wasn't certain whether or not she was a suspect before making this phone call, she could rest assured that she was now. As it would eventually turn out, Dan Brophy actually had upwards of 10 life insurance policies in his name. The $40,000 that Nancy spoke of on the call was one of many, and it was later revealed that in the event of Daniel Brophy's untimely passing, Nancy actually stood to gain some $800,000. From said policies. This, in addition to benefits from workmen's compensation, and given the fact that Daniel died at his place of work, 
the estimated payout would have been more in the ballpark of $1.4 million. It was also discovered that, though the Brophys were in financial danger, they were still paying an incredible $800 monthly into Daniel's life insurance policies alone for some odd reason. Aside from this colossal and rather lucrative potential motive, police already had an abundance of other evidence pointing squarely at Nancy Brophy, the content of her romance novels representing only the tip of that iceberg. See, after digging into Nancy's background, authorities decided the subject matter of her self-published books might actually be worth taking a second look at, considering the circumstances surrounding her husband's murder. The reason being that a few of her books included titles such as Hell on the Heart, The Wrong Brother, The Wrong Hero, The Wrong Lover, and last but not least, The Wrong Husband. I find it easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. I don't want to worry about brains and blood splattered on my walls. Really, I'm not good at remembering lies. This is only one of the many striking lines within this particular piece of literature. Virtually all of Nancy Brophy's books featured cover art of shirtless, muscular men and were selling for about $3 on Amazon, just in case you're in the market for some exciting new reading material. Regardless, creative writings with themes of sex and infidelity certainly would never hold up in court or constitute Nancy's guilt in regards to this homicide. After all, she is a fantasy writer. But when authorities came across a 2011 essay flagrantly entitled How to Murder Your Husband, posted to Nancy's online blog, one can help but question just how coincidental any of this could possibly be. Divorce is expensive, and do you really want to split your possessions? If murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. And let me say clearly for the record, I don't like jumpsuits, and orange isn't my color. The 700-word dissertation has since vanished from the internet, but a few excerpts such as these are still public. But that wasn't all. There was even more. Much more, in fact. Those details, however, would have to wait until trial. After months of painstakingly building their case, authorities finally had what they needed, and on September 5th, 2018, Nancy Crampton Brophy was arrested and charged with her husband Daniel's murder. Nancy Brophy was 68 years old. If you were to look at her mugshot without context of why she had been arrested, it might be a natural impulse to feel bad for her. From this image alone, you'd think someone's sweet grandmother was mistakenly being detained for a crime she surely didn't commit. When this story hit the media and the elderly suspect's face was aired on television for the first time, it spread like wildfire across the nation. But no one was quite as shocked as those who knew Nancy Brophy personally. In fact, one neighbor who shared a fence with the Brophys didn't think much of Nancy's lack of emotion when he spoke with her following her husband's death. She's taken it well, and that's what I said. You know, she, 
I said, maybe that's, you know, some people can handle things better than others. And she never showed that she was really upset. But, you know, we nobody, I think, dwelled on the subject. You know, hey, what do you think of the, you know, you, know, you just kind of get in and get out type thing. I never put that together. I mean, I mean, even after she said I'm a suspect, I just thought, oh, yeah, well, they, they always suspect the opposite spouse. I would hope that she's innocent um, and that she's just handling it well. Innocent until proven guilty. And that's exactly the mindset Nancy and her attorneys would keep after she ultimately entered a plea of not guilty, choosing to face a jury of her peers. Nancy Brophy's trial would be inevitably delayed several times due to the pandemic. She requested bail back in 2020 during the peak of COVID-19, a request that was ultimately denied. Finally, almost four years since the murder, proceedings were set to begin in May of 2022, and over the course of this lengthy trial, both sides would have the opportunity to present their extensive and complete arguments. The judge ruled that the How to Murder Your Husband essay written by Nancy would not be allowed into evidence. He determined that it was written too long ago to support any legitimate theory of planning on Nancy Brophy's part relating to her husband's untimely murder. Ultimately, it was deemed prejudicial and the essay was subsequently thrown out. This, of course, was not of much concern for the prosecution as their main arguments would be founded on three other cornerstones in this case. The life insurance money, which indicated a clear motive, surveillance camera footage, and the murder weapon. Or, in this case, weapons. During opening statements, District Attorney Sean Overstreet laid out exactly how much money Nancy stood to gain by killing Dan. He also laid out the timeline of Dan's final moments the morning of June 2nd, 2018 providing screen grabs of the chef on surveillance from the time he left his home to his eventual arrival at his place of work. Overstreet went on to provide screenshots of Nancy's minivan as well, as she had been caught on camera by several local businesses the morning of the crime. Nancy is clearly visible in the driver's seat of one image while crossing train tracks in the downtown area near where her husband was murdered. The van was captured on video during this time frame from multiple angles, indicating that Nancy was not in fact at home and in bed like she had originally claimed to police. Forensic specialists had also uncovered that same van had been sitting in front of the Culinary Institute weeks before, the state suggesting that Nancy may have been conducting a dry run of an alleged plot to kill Chef Brophy, set for a later date. But what about the gun? Here's where things get tricky. We know that a 9mm weapon was used in the shooting, and when Nancy was first interviewed by police, she told them that she did in fact own a Glock 17, and that she had purchased it legally from a gun show back in February of 2018. A Glock 17 does indeed fire 9mm bullets, and Nancy happily handed the weapon over to police at the time. But when the gun was tested, the results, surprisingly, indicated that it had never been fired. One would think this would be a major advantage for the defense, but not quite. As the prosecution continued, they also revealed that Nancy had purchased a separate slide and barrel on eBay, one that fit the body of a Glock 17, only days after she was at the gun show. Conveniently, 
the eBay slide and barrel had never been recovered. But what does it all mean? The state argued that Nancy had swapped the parts, killed Dan, and then switched the slide and barrel back to the original as to appear unused. She then allegedly disposed of the parts that had actually been fired. In addition, prosecutors found a Glock ghost gun kit in a storage unit belonging to Nancy, which included parts of a weapon that were lacking serial numbers and are sometimes created using 3D printers or purchased online. A forensic scientist who thoroughly tested and fired both weapons testified in court, concluding that the bullet casings found at the scene could not have come from either slide and barrel that were recovered. The markings on the bullet were different and would not have been a match. However, when the prosecution asked if the bullets may have come from the eBay slide and barrel, the one that had mysteriously gone missing, he responded by stating that he could neither confirm nor deny the possibility. In a brazen move by Brophy's attorneys, Nancy would choose to take the stand testifying in her own defense, thus, of course, opening her up for cross-examination by the prosecution, which in retrospect may not have been in her best interest. You would agree that you never told law enforcement that you owned this ghost gun kit? No, because this ghost gun kit, despite the fact you refer to it as a weapon on a regular basis, is not a weapon unless I hit somebody over the head with a case. There's nothing about that gun kit that's a gun, except that if you spend a few hours and put it together, it could be a gun. But I've got eggs and flour in my pantry, and that's not an omelet either until you uh, put it together. How clever. Nancy claimed the Glock from the gun show was actually intended for Dan to use himself, but that he never did. When asked why Dan would need a gun in the first place, she responded by saying it was, quote, for protection, while he was foraging for mushrooms, of all things. Her defense insisted that the ghost gun kit was purchased merely as a prop, research, if you will, for her next romance novel. Apparently, the main character in this future bestseller receives several single gun parts in the mail over time, building suspense as the story grows. And so the plot thickens. And you would agree that you also never told the police about the slide and barrel that um, you purchased on on eBay? Mr. Overstreet, when I talked to the police in June, they asked me specific questions. My husband had just died. The fact that I was coherent at all is a miracle. The fact that they never came back to me after that for a follow-up interview, I think thought was shocking. You know, I thought this was on the police. This wasn't on me. The police said, we're handling this. You just go home and rest. You know, you go home and take it one day at a time, you know. And they never contacted me again, except for the things that I they asked me for, which was Dan's schedule. I got that to them, and I was having trouble with their email, but I did what I was asked to do. Are you declining to answer my question? Perhaps not. What was your question? That was a lengthy answer for not remembering my question. Well, I go off on tangents. She's not wrong. After all, Nancy loved to talk. To her detriment, in fact. At the same time that someone happens to be shooting your husband within a six-minute window with the exact type of gun that you own and is now mysteriously missing. That's your version of what happened. That is not my version. The only thing I know for sure is I did not kill Dan. And I have no problem with that. I know I didn't 
kill Dan with the gun that was put together, the gun that wasn't put together, or the slide that we can't find. A large part of Nancy Brophy's defense was that she had been experiencing, quote, retrograde amnesia, a condition prohibiting one from recalling memories formed prior to the events which caused the impairment. When confronted with the surveillance images, Nancy claimed she didn't remember ever driving downtown the day Dan was killed. She went on to state that if she was, in fact, in the area, however, it would have been because she was working on her next book and writing in a nearby parking lot inside of her van. But the prosecution challenged Nancy on her so-called memory loss, receiving not much in the form of responses other than repeated variations of the phrase, I don't know. So if you do not know, you have no memory of driving around downtown on the morning of June 2nd, Uh how can you sit here today and say that I was driving around writing? Because if I was down there, that's what I was doing. And you're right, I stand corrected that I should have answered the question differently and said, I don't know. If you have no memory, how do you know you didn't go in the building? You know, I'm reconstructing this, but I'm reconstructing this based upon what I know in my heart. And what I know in my heart is the reason why I have no memory is because I was stunned by the fact Dan was dead. And I wouldn't have been stunned if I'd been in the building and shot him. I didn't suggest that you did go in to shoot him. What I'm suggesting and asking okay. is, did you just go in the building? And how would you know if you didn't? My response, I don't remember, is the most accurate thing I can tell you. Only strengthening the state's claims of this alleged and elaborate plan, Nancy's internet search history was also presented in court. She had previously bookmarked an article on her computer entitled, 10 Ways to Cover Up a Murder. Again, not much left to the imagination. An excerpt from that online article reads as follows. The very best time to commit a crime is in the very early hours of the day, when most people are asleep. The state expressed to the jury their belief that Nancy chose the morning of Saturday, June 2nd, to carry out the murder, because it wouldn't have been busy at the Culinary Institute, thus eliminating her chances of being seen. They also suggested that Chef Dan Brophy may have actually welcomed Nancy into the building before seeing her pull the weapon. He most certainly would have trusted his wife of nearly 26 years at his place of work, making the possibility of an elaborate plan all the more sinister. But there's even more here. In March of 2018, a person under the account name Nancy viewed several YouTube videos. The contents including, quote, cleaning a Glock 17, Glock 17 Gen 4 detail strip, and loading a 9mm Glock. Just when you think things couldn't get any worse for Nancy, a key witness in this case would take the stand, after much debate as to whether or not they should be allowed to. This individual was a woman by the name of Andrea Jacobs, a former cellmate of Nancy's while the two were being held in detention. Jacobs testified that while in jail together, Nancy revealed to her in full detail how she murdered her husband, Dan. She told me that he was shot two times to the heart and um, that, and she showed me the distance. She said he was shot two times to the heart and she said it was about, and she used her arm span because I said, wow, that must have been close up. 
you know, and she used her arm span and said, well, it was about this far. The controversial How to Murder Your Husband essay Nancy wrote years before had already been headline news almost everywhere by this point. It was even mentioned on the Jimmy Kimmel show, just to give you an idea of the scale it reached. And while the essay's contents were not admissible as evidence during the trial, that didn't sway District Attorney Overstreet from delivering one last subtle dagger before arresting his case. He decided to covertly present a quote from that very essay in the form of a question to Nancy Brophy while she was testifying on the stand. And let's just say her response didn't do her any favors. My last question to you, Ms. Brophy, is if there's one thing that you know about murder, is it that anyone is capable of doing it? I absolutely believe that. And I believe that because, once again, if it's your child or the person in front of you, 10 to 1, you will find yourself capable of murder. I think most people don't murder for flimsy reasons. I think people get pushed into a corner where they have no other options. I think people murder because they're protecting somebody they love. I think people murder, well, there's some mercy killings perhaps where people murder to save the person they love pain, but I think that's rare. I think people murder in rage. I don't think people murder because they say, well, you know, we'll just sneak down and uh, do this quickly, you know. I think if you're going to murder somebody, 10 to 1, that person knows that you are not happy with them. You know, I don't think that should come as a mystery, you know, to anybody. I don't think people murder willy-nilly out of the, uh, just because, you know. Yeah, financial reason is a big reason. But going back to my case, there's not enough financial reason there to make it. I do better with Dan alive financially than I do with Dan dead. There's no financial gain here. You know, we had solved our problem. I turned the book into an editor and I said, well, they had a problem here in October of 2017, but they had solved it. But then she murdered him in 2018 when they had solved their financial problem. Where is the motivation? $1.4 million. That's where the motivation was. But in the end, it would be up to the jury to decide. And after 24 hours of deliberation, this case would finally come to a close when the verdict was read aloud on May 25th, 2022. It says, uh, we the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled cause, do find our verdicts upon the counts submitted to us as follows. Count one, murder in the second degree, guilty. And then with regards to the two questions, the state alleging that during the commission of this felony, the defendant caused or threatened the use of a firearm, the answer is yes. And then the state further alleges that during the commission of this felony, the defendant and the victim were married, the answer is yes. Void of any apparent emotion, Nancy Crampton Brophy stared blankly while the guilty verdict was read aloud in court. Her attorneys since have gone on record to state that they will be appealing the decision. Immediately following the trial outside of the courtroom, local reporters were able to speak with Daniel's son, Nathaniel, and his mother, Karen. They both expressed their deep appreciation that justice for Chef Brophy had finally been served. Uh, to finally have some closure is, has been very important and meaningful for our family. And 
um, so that we can start to kind of move on and remember my father always, but, but begin that process of starting to grieve. Through the trial, Portland has learned that our son was a great guy, you know, and we really miss him, and it's, it's been a, a heartwarming experience in that way. A few weeks later, on June 13th, 2022, Nancy Brophy was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Given the fact that she is now 71 years old, it is very unlikely that she'll live to see another day outside of the walls of a state penitentiary. In July of 2020, roughly two years after Chef Daniel Brophy was murdered, the Oregon Culinary Institute closed its doors for good due to the ongoing challenges faced during COVID-19. While the shutdown was for the same reasons several businesses had also shut down during this time, it almost seemed fitting after Chef Brophy's passing. After Daniel died, a part of the Institute died as well. The college simply wasn't the same without him. The impact he made on so many of Portland's current and future culinary experts was simply profound, and his legacy lives on through those he taught, both young and old. Bob Warnock, who we had the pleasure of interviewing, is a great example of that legacy. He keeps Dan's memory alive through his own restaurant, a successful and tangible representation of where his culinary background has taken him. Though it's been over 20 years since Bob learned the ropes from Chef Brophy, he expressed to us just how grateful he is to have had that opportunity, a time in life he most certainly will always hold close to the heart. He was a great guy, very eccentric. A lot of the other chefs that were at that school and Dan were friends. Um, they seemed to hang out together a bit, uh, barbecues and outdoor stuff. He had a rooftop garden on top of the Culinary Institute that was pretty neat. He had so many different things growing up there. It's crazy. But that's just the kind of weird things he was into, you know. Bob also offered his condolences not only to Dan's family, but also to the students who were there that day. He expressed a great sympathy for how horrible an experience it must have been for everyone involved. Um, I, I can't remember what I was doing when I found out, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing, that he was actually gone and somebody had killed him like that, especially at the school where all those students are, and then had to deal with that too. Pretty rough deal. Anytime there's a shooting like that or a murder where a lot of other people are involved, it's that's got to be pretty traumatic, I can't imagine. And she didn't seem to have a care, I suppose. And that callousness demonstrated by Nancy Brophy against her husband remains one of the most unsettling aspects of this entire case. From the time Dan was murdered, right up until the end of her trial, which lasted an astounding seven weeks, Nancy never seemed to show any remorse for what she had done. Her ability to take this man's life and not feel any genuine sorrow is perhaps the scariest part of it all. Another former student of Chef Brophy's couldn't believe that it was Nancy either who had committed the murder. He remembers grieving with this woman, standing next to her at the candlelight vigil. Chef Brophy was always a family man. He was always around his family, surrounding himself with his family. We never thought in a million years that it would come down to her. You know, after putting together the candlelight vigil and seeing everyone attend and seeing her there watching all of us grieve and 
cry and tell stories about her husband. Dan Brophy's murder never fit the criteria of the typical mystery whodunit. Presumably, just like her books, there was no mystery or compelling story arc whatsoever here. All lines were linear in this crime, connecting straight back to Nancy and Nancy alone. This act was committed out of sheer greed and selfishness, with an extreme lack of regard for human life. What's astounding aside from the murder itself was just how poor of a job she'd done in covering her tracks. While there was an extensive amount of planning that went into disguising the murder weapon by swapping the gun barrel and slides out, that was about the only thing Nancy tried to disguise. Perhaps she thought because of her old age and gentle demeanor, no one would suspect her as the culprit. Or maybe her intrinsic sense of apathy superseded her concerns for being caught. Whatever her thought process may have been, it's hard not to think she didn't at least somewhat enjoy the attention she had gotten. Through countless hours of trial footage, Nancy is often seen giddy on the stand, as if she's excited to be noticed for the first time in her life. After all, she was a failed author. She was never truly successful in her craft, and yet she finally had all eyes on her. Had she gotten away with it, for once, her next book, more than likely, would have done quite well. All of it, of course, coming at the cost of Daniel Brophy's life, something Nancy clearly didn't place much value in. What we can somewhat understand is why this case garnered the media attention that it did. A romance novelist who wrote books about marrying the wrong person and a blog entry, literally titled How to Murder Your Husband, makes for great tabloid or headline news stories when that author's husband ultimately ends up dead. And while there are fascinating components of how everything came together in this case, it is essential not to lose sight of what is truly important. And that's the life of a great man who touched so many while he was alive. We feel obligated to commemorate Daniel Brophy the best way we know how. Through all of the drama and theatrics of what happened in this tragedy, we hoped Daniel Brophy's impact on the world around him is what ultimately shines through, and that his name is the one that will be remembered in the end. 